Corbett wins. This is a 9-9. Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. You're listening to a podcast from key moments in Cold War sports history, a series showcasing the work of expert sports historians. I'm Vince Hunt and I'm hosting the series, exploring how sport became a frontier in an era of superpower politics and intense international competition. There are more than 30 podcasts in our series now, which you can listen to on iTunes and Stitcher. They're curated by Laura Deal at the Wilson Centre in Washington. Please feel free to rate and review them. Follow us on Twitter at CWIHP and hashtag Cold War Sport. And thanks to our regular listeners for their positive feedback. David Kanan has first-hand experience of the Cold War as a child with the missile drills at school and the duck and cover exercises. He joined the CIA as an analyst and was active in the run-up to the Moscow Olympics. And now he argues that the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was simply just one of a number of reasons why the US boycotted the Moscow Olympics. David, Let's start first with your duck and cover experiences. That that was the Cold War in the bad old days. At nine, yeah, but at nine or ten years old, we didn't really understand it. I don't remember a great deal of fear. Um, I don't remember really hovering in terror. You just did what the teachers told you, and then it ended. Then you got back in your seats. It really wasn't much more than that to any of us. Um, it, was, it was hard for us to imagine what the reality of the situation was, which is sort of a nice place to be. <laughs> and the sound of that siren... Loud, but so what? I mean, it was it was just part of part of the rhythm of life at the time. At noon, the thing would go off, or sometime, and and we would just do what we did. Uh, we were quite used to it. You ended up joining the CIA as an analyst. W- what does that mean in those days? What were you analyzing, and how were you analyzing it? What were you analyzing it for? We're considered all source analysts. Sources will come in from various places. Our job is to make sense of them. To first, there's some things that just have to be reported as they are because they're hot, fast-breaking, or of particular importance to the policymaker. Other things we try to draw meaning from. The point of all of it, though, is to serve the policymakers, to assist them in the job they have of making policy. And intelligence analysts do not make policy. We have very strict guidelines about that, and, and we take a certain pride in, in not stepping over that line. Describe the atmosphere in the run-up to the Moscow Olympics, because that's when the I would imagine that the diplomatic traffic would speed up quite a lot. Traffic was going on about a lot of other things. The Moscow Olympics was one issue that we pay, were paying some attention to. I had done my PhD dissertation on sports and politics, so I had a particular interest in it. And I kind of knew that if it got to be, if there was a boycott movement, I, I, I figured I might be writing about it. It does not become important in the context of my job until the, the administration clearly decides on a boycott, and that becomes a national, uh, national policy that we need to support. Then I start writing. And what happens when the administration decides that the boycott is going ahead? How does the CIA respond to that? I can't speak for the whole CIA. I can tell you that for myself. The issue was, what are the goals of the administration? What, will, how does the boycott fit into those goals? Will they achieve those goals? So can we organize a successful boycott? The uh, administration also wanted to organize alternative games. Can they organize successfully alternative games? Can we help them do that, not by telling them how, but by suggesting where, people's, where people are coming from, who is positively inclined toward it, who is negatively in- inclined toward it, why? 
we all, I also realized they didn't understand much about the Olympic movement. I had to explain how it worked. They, didn't, they knew about the International Olympic Committee. Some of them, yeah, there are national Olympic committees. They didn't realize how the tripartite system with all the federations work, nothing about the committees, nothing about the sort of the arcanery of intra-Olympic politics. Uh, they needed to learn that from scratch. So the, the idea of the boycott was simply an idea. There, there wasn't the research that had been done into how it might be implemented and, in fact, be successful. There was an invasion of Afghanistan piling on the problems in Iran, piling on the, the local, the, the domestic economic problems, piling on the problems we'd had in Europe over the enhanced radiation warhead and the intermediate-range nuclear force issue. And, of course, there were other arms control negotiations going on. This came on top of all of those other things. And, and for a few months, it got a lot of attention. We knew, of course, and the administration knew it would get a lot of attention, which those other things only got when there was some big hot headline. So that meant that we were going to pay some attention to it and try to help the administration the best we can um, know what things meant, and we'd give them our views on how things were going and how different countries were reacting. But they, of course, had, their, had other sources of information, and there they could take our views um, as they choose or leave them as, as they choose. The success of the Khomeini Revolution, of course, had been a bit of a surprise, and, and all the things that happened afterwards happened in a way that created a very difficult situation. The invasion of Afghanistan was a front and center um, Soviet aggression against a neighboring country, um, putting troops in a place they hadn't really been before, uh, but also reflective of problems the Soviets were having inside Afghanistan, because it's important to remember that they had paramount influence there after the fall of the king in 73 and the, and the coming into power of, uh, of a communist government. The fact they needed, they felt the need to invade all struck, struck me at least as showing they were having some problems there. It wasn't just sort of naked, thoughtless aggression. They were having some problems. So both superpowers um, had, had, had some difficulties. But of course, with the Americans wanting a change in the situation the Soviets had created, that put an extra burden on, uh, on, on the president and, and his advisors. The boycott was, was part of the effort at least to show we were doing something. Because after Iran, where it seemed nothing was happening, I don't think anybody, especially in an election year, could afford to be perceived as doing nothing. The Olympics were coming up as a highly publicized event that the Soviets cared about. So it gave us a target, gave us an opportunity, but also in the view, in, in, in the, the view I think of some, it was a, an appropriate public expression of government and public opposition to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. We were then looking for support from allies, neutrals, and others around the world. It was quickly clear that there was a general support in the American public, according to the polls, for action against the Soviets to include a boycott. As, it went, as time went on, however, when it was clear the athletes were very upset by it, they'd say, you know, they were making this great sacrifice, we've done all this training, this may be our only shot you're taking away from us, that argument had an effect on people. The boycott was never unpo as unpopular as, say, the Vietnam War or something like that, but it, the popularity was never overwhelming. The foreign reaction was something else. There was always a quizzical response. Why? Uh, there was skepticism. There was support from, from, from some allied governments. There was support from some allied Olympic committees, but not many. And, uh, we, and it was clear the athletes were, were, were dead set against it. It was a complicated situation, not unexpected. I think, you know, the administration, sometimes the card administration was criticized like being by caught off on the back foot by, by the opposition. I think the administration knew that this was not going to be an easy thing. But again, they really didn't have anything else. 
One of the supporters of the boycott was Margaret Thatcher in the UK, and she promised uh, support, but it wasn't forthcoming from everybody. Was there any arm-twisting going on with, uh, with the European powers? It wasn't so much. There was some with the governments, not much. Most of, our, most of the Allied governments understood why we were aiming for a boycott. They understood all the problems with it. They knew we understood those problems. Some of them were quite skeptical about it. But most of the governments wanted to be as supportive as possible, even those who believed from the beginning that their Olympic teams would be going to Moscow. Now, for the sporting associations, very different. Dead set against it from the beginning, of course, starting with the IOC, going down to all the National Olympic Committees and their individual sports federations. That They were dead set against it. And when the Americans decided, when we decided, we wanted to set up alternative games to assuage the athletes, that made it worse, of course. And it was obvious it was going to. That was, you know, it was obvious that, would, that was a bad idea if the goal was to persuade anybody in the Olympic movement to go along with it. The, the, you know, threatening their monopoly on international sports is existential for them. They make too much money off it. They get too famous off it. They're, they're treated like royalty when they go to, to cities that want to host the games. They, they get whatever they want. They're not going to risk that. Um, and the administration needed to realize that. I think, I think that, um, again, they didn't understand the Olympic movement that well. I'm not sure they saw the salience, the depth of the existential interest of the ILC members and the others who benefit, the other administrators, not athletes, the administrators who benefit so much materially from uh, the way international sport is run. And there are the stories of the Russians asking the East Germans to bring the West Germans, uh, keeping diplomatic channels open via back doors, and among all this, the interesting position of Germany between uh, West and East. There was a lot of pressure on both Germanys, particularly on West Germany, because West Germany was the real Germany as far as everybody else was concerned, including most East Germans. So as we found out later when the wall came down, the, the, the Germans were under a lot of scrutiny. They knew it. Um, Chancellor Schmidt had been the, a speech he'd made in October 77 had led to the intermediate range nuclear force issue. Before then, there was the enhanced radiation weapon. The Germans knew they'd come under pressure for this. The German Olympic Committee knew it would come under pressure. Everybody knew that. I thought, I think everybody behaved in a, in a reasonable manner. I don't remember any great hostility one way or the other. Now, I was not in the room, so who knows what, what happened behind closed doors. I think everybody recognized the nature of the situation, um, and everybody looked to the German vote on May 15, 1980, and to where they were going at, as being important. Um, but it was, it, it was sort of a contest among people who had a pretty good idea of where everybody else stood, where they stood, and what the major issues were. And with East Germany as well, East Germany was leaned upon by the Soviet Union. The East Germans had, of course, remember, great, great sports teams. We know now there was a big doping program going on, which is one reason why they had great sports teams. Nevertheless, they did have a, a very successful training program, even taking into account all the, all the drugs. So they were going to go to the games, of course, and of course were Soviet ally, and they were going to be prominent there. The, the wrinkle here, of course, is that they were German, and the, and the Soviets did look to them. Um, I, don't think, I don't think they relied on them. They had a lot of, the Soviets had a lot of channels everywhere. But certainly the East Germans were... Uh, one of the factors in the Soviet effort to try to get as many teams to send countries to send teams to Moscow as possible. In your diplomatic traffic, did the issue of doping ever turn up? It was not a big issue then. It really wasn't. Afghanistan was, the, uh, the boycott was. Uh, it was 
people knew what was going on, but frankly, it was not a big issue for those of us following the geostrategic aspect of the games and the boycott. And diplomatically, would you say that Moscow left the door open until the very last minute to try and get the U.S. and its allies? I do believe that. I do believe that. I think I think the Soviets wanted the Americans in. Um, again, it's like with them not being there, the, and, the, and, the, and the Soviets ran a successful game. So it went off all, as these things do quite well. They're very big at big, good at big events. But it's like a superpower movie with no supervillain. Without having, if it, it's so what if you have these great powers if there's no one to test it against? Now, of course, there were other teams to test it against, but the Americans were the great villains. The same thing happened in 1984, the, the Mira situation, where the Soviets boycott the Los Angeles games. And yes, the Americans ran a nice show, but they didn't have their supervillains there. It was sort of a, uh, they, they sort of nullified each other in that way. Do you think the Moscow Olympics set in train a domino that then led to the 84 Olympics with the boycott and the Seoul Olympics of 88 being the doping Olympics? And really after that, there were no more Olympics. There was never a, a straight Olympics after Moscow, was there? I would argue there was never a quote-unquote straight Olympics. And I don't think that the, the boycott changed all that much regarding the Cold War international relations. What it did change, it ended the, the, the fiction that politics are not involved with sports, that the two are somehow separate. After that, they, they ended that fiction. They didn't say they did, but they did. And the best example, the best evidence for that was a movement away from Lord Killinan, who was really from the old school, and I think a bit over his head, uh, to uh, Juan Antonio Samaran of Spain, who was a seasoned diplomat. Of course, he wanted to get the Olympics for Barcelona and did. But he was a man who understood geopolitics. And he knew that, uh, that the games and politics were mixed. And by the way, he knew that he and everybody else in the Olympic movement could make a lot of money and get a lot of attention and a lot of influence by, by accepting that and basically embracing the political side, even while they rejected it publicly, but basically using it as a tool uh, to extract as much as they could out of every Olympic aspirant, every hosting aspirant, every federation, every government. And they've done that ever since and done it very successfully. I can show you, I saw brochures when I was doing my, my research from, from 19, uh, 1928 and 1920, looking for at aspirants already. The, the Olympic movement is, is still pretty new and it's just getting back on its feet after the First World War. You've already got competition and the, and the International Olympic Committee could exploit that. So it was, it was there for a long time, but the potential profits from that and the, and the attention and the... the elitists, they'd be treated like elites, like royalty, and they insist on that. They still do. And it's really pretty distasteful, in my view. That really takes off, I think, after 1980. And of course, television's already mature. I think it's already of a mature form, and, uh, but it, it gets even more lucrative um, as, as time goes on. In that context, then the doping and, and a lot of other things begin to get more important. So I think the, the Olympics really take off as it's really entertainment. It becomes more pure entertainment, less of this nonsense about sports, you know, stronger, faster, or whatever the, the slogans are. The slogans are still there, but, it's pretty, but it becomes clearer to everybody that they are just slogans. And they, they, be, they don't go into disuse, but they simply go into the, so the promos for the sports, and nobody really believes them very much. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org. 
These podcasts are part of the project The Global History of Sport in the Cold War, which is sponsored by the National Endowment of the Humanities, directed by Professor Bob Edelman of UC San Diego, Professor Chris Young from the University of Cambridge, and Dr Christian Osterman of the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and run in collaboration with the German Historical Institute Moscow, the Jordan Centre for Advanced Russian Studies at New York University, and Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. The presenter is Vince Hunt and the series is produced by Vince Hunt and Laura Deal.